Good evening, everybody. I'm going to pray for us as we get started. God, thank you for working in the middle of our mess. Thank you for including us um, in the work that you've set out to do in this world. Thank you for the, the family that you've drawn here together at Revolution and for the ability we have to gather to worship um, and to step in and play parts sometimes that we, that we don't go into things knowing we're going to play. God, you're good. You're good. And it's a privilege to be here and um, to worship you. In your son's name, amen. Well, good evening, everybody. It's good to be back with you again. Um, this is my first time preaching in um, about a month, which is pretty exciting. I had a lot of fun working on a message this week, and um, I'm super excited just to get up and speak with you guys again. This week, just to kind of go right into it, we're continuing in the third week of a series that I've been really excited about for a few months now, and it's called Re-Revolution. And the big idea of this series is that the story that we have participated in as a church over the last 11 years, with all its ups and downs and twists and turns, is still a consistent story, wherein God has been shaping our passions and shaping our ministry as a church into a unique vision and purpose for this particular community of believers, which was a very Kenny sentence, which means that most of us, including me, lost it about halfway through that sentence. So, I'm going to rephrase that, put it a different way. The point of this series is that who we have been continues to shape who we are becoming. And so long as we continue to have the humility that it takes to allow God to steer us as a church, then we're going to see our church continue to evolve in healthier and healthier ways. Two weeks ago, Matt Murphy started this series off by talking about our passion for church planting here at Revolution and how that passion has contributed not only to the way Revolution started, but how it has continued to play a part in our attitude and in our identity as a church in the last 11 years. As Matt was talking that week, I kept looking around the room and thinking to myself, there are some people who would walk into uh, walk into this room, and they would see an 11-year-old church that's still renting space, that's still small in numbers, that's still small in staff, and they would think that this is a failure. But what I see here at Revolution is a church that has always, from its very beginning, been committed to pouring out what God pours in. I see a church that's not trying to clutch at things and has never tried to clutch at things, that's not trying to build an empire, but instead one that wants to play a part in a kingdom bigger than itself. And that, that fills my heart with joy. And then last week, our planting pastor, Josh Burnett, talked about our first slogan as a church way back in 2010, which was, a church for people who don't like church. And he reminded us that the heart of that slogan was always about building a community where people who have often felt 
unsafe in church contexts can not only feel safe, but can actually belong and grow. And that turn of phrase has helped us create a community over the last decade that has been an open door, an open gateway, to use Josh's term from last week, for people who have been on the absolute verge, and I mean this, for people who have been on the absolute verge of giving up on Christianity altogether, but instead have been able to keep their hearts open to what the real God, not the American God or the evangelical God, but what the real God wants to do in their lives. And because of the community that you guys have helped to shape here, I've seen people come in and out of this building who have been able to hold on to a faith that was right on the edge of, of disappearing. And this week, we're looking at another slogan from the early days of our church's history. In fact, it was the caption on the very first postcard that Revolution ever sent out. To my knowledge, Josh is actually here, so he can correct me if there was a previous postcard, but to my knowledge, it was the first one, and it had a picture of a crying woman's face, mascara running down her cheeks, and underneath the words, no perfect people allowed. No perfect people allowed. Some of you remember exactly the postcard that we're talking about. This was a crucial part of our church's vision, and although it's been a long time since we printed that on anything, it continues, I think, to be a crucial reminder for us when it comes to two important parts of what it means to be a healthy church. First, it reminds us of who we want to welcome in, and second, it challenges us about how we interact with each other now that we're here. The slides have spoiled where I'm headed with this, but that's all right. That's, that's a cool thing. We'll get there. But if you're the note-taking type, those are the two bullet points for our time tonight. Number one, we exist to reach those who feel they are not perfect in the city around us. And two, we are responsible for refusing to pretend to be perfect, for refusing to pretend to be perfect in our relationships here with each other. But how do we get to those two points? Where do they come from when it comes to what the Bible teaches, and how can we feel those two points sharply and freshly again, even if we've heard them a hundred times? This isn't going to be a surprise where we're headed because, you know, you've already seen the misty boardwalk. But a few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to finally share one of my very favorite places on earth with not just Meredith and my kids, but even with my parents who were able to, to travel with us. And that place is Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming. How many of you have been to Yellowstone before? Some folks. All right, excellent. Um, I'm not going to start going on and on about it because if I do, I'm not going to I'll never stop, so let me just simply say that it's, it's the loveliest. In any case, while we were there, I made a big point of driving out the north entrance of the park towards the small mountain town of Gardner, Montana. And I have to tell you, there's really nothing at all special about Gardner, Montana, except a mysterious pizza shop that I never was able to find, but I was told about. But anyways, when we were planning the trip, Meredith was pretty skeptical about this whole side quest to Gardner. But I told her that I wanted to do it, not because I wanted to see that little town, 
but because I wanted to see this. Nope, go back, go back. I want to see that. That's the Roosevelt Arch. It was erected in 1903 as the gateway to Yellowstone. I showed her this picture, actually, in Big Whoop, she said. Fair. But here's the thing about this arch. It's not really that impressive. It's not really all that beautiful. But it is inscribed with a brief excerpt from the Organic Act of 1872, which established Yellowstone as the very first national park in the entire world. That excerpt reads, now we can go to the next slide, for the benefit and enjoyment of the people. For the benefit and enjoyment of the people. In the original act, it's kind of a throwaway line, but over the last century, it has had an enormous impact on the National Park Project. And here's why. Because that line creates for the National Park Service a divided purpose. On the one hand, parks exist to preserve natural wonders from all the terrible things that we humans might do to them if we were allowed to. But on the other hand, the parks exist for us terrible people. This tension has dominated the story of the National Park Service, which is responsible for trying to do this, for trying to simultaneously keep our public lands safe and healthy and make it possible at the same time for us to experience them. And it's no easy task when it comes to imperfect people. But I'll contend tonight that it may be a sacred one. If you ever have the chance to travel to a national park in Canada, as another example, you will immediately see how different things can be. Because Canadian national parks are not for you. They are for no one. They are boundaried areas that you are free to explore if that's your thing, but they make no effort whatsoever to guide you through that experience or to protect you in the middle of that experience. You're on your own. No visitor centers, no paved trails, no parking lots. This is a far cry from Yellowstone, which welcomes some four million visitors each year. So, tonight, this room of 35 of us, 40 of us, let's get into an argument with our neighbors from the north, shall we? When it comes to these two attitudes towards parks, who's right? Who's right? Well, it depends, right? Yellowstone rangers are endlessly fighting the foolishness of their guests and the messes that those guests make. But the question, of course, is what's the legacy, right? What's the legacy, the lasting benefit of sharing such a beautiful place with generation after generation of real people? I bring all of this up because I think it gives us a window, or an arch maybe, into the tensions that arise when it comes to perfection in our faith. Because the story of our Bible begins, right, with a natural space. It begins with a garden that is in perfect balance. And then the human beings that God puts there in that garden, the human being God entrusts with that space, do what people do and mess it up. And the consequence is that they get kicked out, right? 
No imperfect people allowed. That's a pretty great picture, you have to admit. But every, here's the thing, every page of the Bible that comes after that, that moment, is telling a story about God's plan to bring those people back home. And that makes one thing inescapable, I think, for those of us who set out to obey and follow the God of the Bible. And it's this, that our God, the God, loves imperfect people. He loves Adam and Eve. He loves the descendants of Abraham who become his chosen nation. He loves the Israelites' neighbors, even when they mock him, when they mock his people. He loves the weak and the flawed and the broken leaders and judges and prophets of those people. He loves them when they're rebellious. He loves them when they're proud. He loves them when they're humbled. And then eventually when he sends his own son, his very self, to live among them and relate to them and even to rescue them, that son goes not to the self-righteous or to the religious among them, right? He goes to the poor, to the bitter, to the broken. It can only mean that God loves imperfect people. We could go on about this, but the heart of Jesus is perhaps most clear on this front and most plain in this brief moment that he shares in the midst of his own execution with these two men who've been nailed to crosses beside him. You might know the story. We find it in the 23rd chapter of Luke's gospel. And the key moment reads like this. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him, at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. I think we don't talk about this story very often because it's very uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable story. I think we also typically assume that the paradise that Jesus is talking about here is heaven, which makes sense, but it's worth pointing out that almost every other instance in all of Scripture where the word paradise is used, it's not referring to heaven, it's referring back, actually, to that garden from the very beginning. God's plan to bring imperfect people back to the place that they lost is accomplished. It's accomplished in this moment on the cross. People may make a mess of the park to play out the metaphor, but the park is nonetheless for them, for the benefit and enjoyment of the people, to teach them. And it is an expression of God's power and mercy and God's goodness that they return to it. Now, I love this moment on the cross, and like I said, I think it's a complicated moment because there's just no question about whether the man here is guilty, right? Like, whether he has sinned. He says, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But the hard part, the complicated part, the messy part, is what does Jesus require of him? 
What does he require? Does he require a slow, long road to redemption? Does he require repayment? Does he require 10 years of good behavior and then a chance at parole? Does he require anything at all? What he requires is this. The man recognizes who Jesus is and asks him to remember him. That's it. And Jesus does. Which means that it's grace, but it's not aimless or indiscriminate grace. It's grace that's connected to God's desire to bring his people back into community with him, back into that garden that he made for the benefit and enjoyment of his people. So what possible response can we have to something like that as a church community? Well, the first bullet point today was that we exist to reach those who feel they are not perfect in the city around us. As a church, we have to start by recognizing that we often build a culture and an attitude toward God's kingdom, towards God's paradise, that runs in the exact opposite direction of God's plans for that culture. We're prone to building a culture of performance and perfection where we fall for this lie that the only way to reach people with the gospel, hear me here, the only way to reach people with the gospel, with the good news about who Jesus is and how Jesus loves us, is to look like people who've been transformed by that good news. To be a church that wins, that looks like it's winning. I was talking with a friend here at Revolution this week who told me that when she became a Christian, she felt this enormous pressure to be different from the world around her so that people would see that Christianity helped her to live a more pure and holy life than the one that she was living before. She needed to look different to make the case. And I think we think of that kind of work, of looking different so that other people see that it's real. We think of that work as evangelism. And it comes, I think, from a sincere desire to try and show that our faith is real and to show people that our faith is powerful. And let me be clear, I think that Christianity should and does actually transform our lives and that that is visible to other people when it's happening. I've experienced that transformation in myself and I've seen it in other people, but the cost of a performance culture where we want so badly to believe that the moment we became a Christian was the last time we ever sinned, was the last time we ever made a mistake, is that we learn really well how to hide the mistakes that we are still making. And what does that, what does that do to the outside world? What does it communicate it communicates that you've, got, that you've got to get your act together first, right? If you want to be a part of this thing. You have turned your faith into a Canadian national park. That's my point. It creates a barrier that is the opposite of welcoming. That's the opposite of Jesus' attitude towards his co-sufferer on the cross. Instead of displaying a God who works in the middle of the mess of the open gate into his kingdom. We give people the impression that God might let us in if we say the right combination of words or pray the right prayer. He might let us into the garden, but we had better behave if we want to stay there. 
So when we said once upon a time on that postcard that no perfect people are allowed here, I think what we were trying to say, what we need to keep trying to say, is that at least this church, at least as this church, we don't want that to be true. We want you to feel like you can belong here no matter what you believe, no matter where you're at, no matter what mistakes you made in the past, or critically, what mistakes you are currently making even as you look at that postcard. And honestly, when I first came to Revolution, because of that postcard, that's all I thought the slogan was about. We want to make sure that we build a church that isn't self-righteous and that doesn't make people feel judged when they come in with brokenness, with baggage, that doesn't make them feel like they can't possibly be a part. And I got to say that that alone is a pretty decent mission. That's not a bad way to build a church. But what I have discovered is that we need that second bullet point from earlier, too. That claim that no perfect people are allowed here needs to extend past the lobby out front where we welcome people in. And it needs to start trans to transform what it means to be and to stay here, too. That's, I think, ultimately what my friend was getting at when she was talking about her first experience with the church as a teenager. When we train each other to make looking better than we used to look a key part of our strategy for evangelism, we screw up something that is actually at the very bedrock of what it means for us to be a community of Jesus followers, which is that we're all still a bunch of messes. And our messes are part of God's plan for the kingdom that He is building, for the garden that He has made, for the park that He has created. Because working in the middle of that mess is how God demonstrates how great and how good He is. Working in the middle of the mess is about the power His love has to make things holy that have no business being holy. If Jesus' answer to the thief on the cross teaches us how to behave to those who are outside the church, the best illustration, I think, of how we need to behave towards each other here in the church might come from the Apostle Paul's first letter to his apprentice, who's a young man named Timothy. He writes to Timothy this. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that He considered me trustworthy, appointing me to His service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And up to this point, it sounds like the same kind of thing that we always say. He was once messed up, but now God has fixed him, and now he's good. But Paul goes on to say this. He says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display His immense patience as an example for those who would believe in Him and receive eternal life. 
Now, I know that I am an old English teacher, but I cannot express enough how important that one present tense verb is. Paul is not saying, hey, everybody, I used to be a total dirtbag. You remember. You heard the stories. But then Jesus welcomed me into paradise, into the garden again, and now look at me. Look at what Jesus has turned me into. He says, Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Not used to be. Am. And why does this matter? Because what Jesus is displaying here is not just the overwhelming scope of God's forgiveness, which we love to talk about in the church. We love to talk about the overwhelming scope of God's forgiveness. What he is talking about is God's immense patience with us, even in the middle of our mess. If God's love was only a matter of grace, forgiveness would be enough. But God's love is also a matter of patience. And what is God waiting for? He's not waiting for us to get our act together. What he's waiting for is the whole of his plan to come to fruition, to come to completion. God is patient with each and every one of us. 2,000 years ago, he was patient. Now he's patient. 2,000 years from now, he will still be patient as we slowly learn what is good and how to behave in the garden, as he trains us lovingly, the way a parent trains a child, forgiving not just the mistakes that we made before he got there, but forgiving the daily mistakes that we keep on making. Because the goal is to get the people back in the park because it was made for their benefit. If God's goal was perfection alone, he put boundaries around his creation, and he would lock all of us screw-ups out of it. That's the only thing that makes any sense to do. But that's not what he did. Because that's not what he intends. He will patiently work with broken people until we're all restored. Because that, that mission speaks not just to our ability to figure things out and start to behave. It speaks to something much bigger than that. It speaks to His goodness and the goodness, not just of what He made once upon a time, but the goodness of how He loves, of how He loves. So how do we respond to that goodness and that reality as a church? Well, our second bullet point was we are responsible for refusing to pretend to be perfect in our relationships with each other. No perfect people are allowed, not just in our doors here at Revolution, but in these seats either. You cannot keep pretending to be perfect. God's plan is to reveal His own power and authority over our brokenness. So we have to be honest with each other. 
It's all kind of abstract. I think a lot about metaphors for the church. Perhaps one of the most enduring metaphors for church throughout history is that churches ought to look like beacons or lighthouses. You've seen this before. And the idea is that a church should shine God's light out into the world to save lost ships from crashing on the rocks that surround them. And I have to tell you, I think it's wrong, or at the very least, unhelpful. That, might, that metaphor might say a whole lot about the power that a church has, but it doesn't say very much, I don't think, about the people inside of that church. After all, how many keepers does your average lighthouse have? What are all of us supposed to be doing in that metaphor? So what if instead, what if instead we started to think of churches not as lighthouses, but as little campfires, as campfires, places where weary people come to sit down, to feel warmth from something beyond them, and to see each other, to see all the other weary souls that this light has brought in from the cold. And what if the culture of a church, of this little campfire, focused less on how far the light of their fire reached and more on who that light illuminates? What if we made our culture one of vision, of transparency, of revelation? What if the point of coming together each week wasn't only to feel the warmth of the fire, which is good and which is good to feel in the company of other people, but also to see the other people that are there with you, the other people that same fire illuminates, to see each other, to be seen by each other. And if one day our little campfire where we all sit around and see each other, if one day our little campfire is starting to draw too many people for it still to be possible to see each other, what if the solution was actually like Matt suggested two weeks ago to take some of the people who've been spending all their time around that campfire and know a thing or two about lighting a campfire and sending them right next door to start one right there too? And what if our vision was for enough campfires that everybody had somewhere to sit and to get warm and to be seen? And that was the vision for what we were trying to create, not the lighthouse that everybody can see from miles away and draw us to so that one person can, I suppose, stand in the middle of it somewhere and, I don't know, keep the light. What if the hope for us, what if the hope for Annapolis wasn't in one giant church? What if it was in a thousand campfires? where anybody and everybody could find rest, could find relationships, could find hope. This week, we're officially kicking off our groups for fall 2021. Maybe the best way to think about a lot of these groups is this little campfires, right? As places where we can gather, where we can be truly seen no matter what our flaws are and offer real encouragement and real love to each other. I'd like to think... That would make a difference in all of our lives if we experienced it. Not because we might walk away from that experience being more perfect than we were when we sat down, but because we would have a chance to see, 
to see in our lives and in the lives of real people the power of God to patiently and lovingly bring people back into His garden, into His purposes, as testimonies to His goodness, testimonies to His love. And that's what I want to be, if I'm honest with you. That's what I want to be. With all my heart, I want that. I don't want perfection. I want to be somebody whose story reveals the mystery and the wonder of a great God. Because here's the thing. I need that kind of a God to be real. If I can see that kind of God, the God of wonder and mystery and power and love, if I can see that kind of God in you, if you can see that kind of God working on me, then we're giving each other, we're giving everybody else in our lives the permission that they need to have real hope. To have real hope. So tonight in this big room, <laughs> let's commit ourselves to that. To commit ourselves not to the building of a lighthouse, but to lighting campfires and then sitting around them. Let's open ourselves up first to the warmth of God, to the warmth our God creates and provides so freely, and then second, to the light that He creates and the people that that light helps us see. So tonight, ask each other one more question before you leave, one more than you normally would. Listen to each other even when you're busy and you got something to do. Sit with each other, not just once a week in these pews, but in your living rooms, at coffee shops. Let yourself be known. Let yourself be known. And let God bring you comfort and hope and an encounter with a truly and an utterly transforming love. Maybe, maybe we're not ready for the garden. I'm probably not ready for the garden. But God welcomes us into it anyways, doesn't he? And he promises to patiently work in us until we are ready. And what good news that is. What a thing. What a thing to sing about at the top of our lungs. What a thing to share. What a church to be. What a church to be.